right, everybody. So today, back on the podcast, we have some fan favorites, Greg Knuckles and Dr. Eric Trexler. How are we doing, guys? Doing well. How are you? Doing well. I don't know, actually, the last time I had you guys on. It's been a while, obviously. Crazy year. Sounds like things are going generally well for you and probably not too disrupted, relatively speaking, given most of what you do is online, right? Correct. I got it. I guess, thank you, Greg. I saw on your Instagram, I was like, what is this song that you were squatting to? And it just like rang some bell. And I realized it was Feel Good Drag by Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, why do I know this song? And I first heard it as a freshman in college. And I just played it and played it and played it and played it until eventually my extremely introverted roommate like begged me to just stop (laughs) playing the song. So now it's back and, and it's back on the playlist. So thanks for reviving that for me. Dude, Amberlin is so good. Their their first three albums are, I think, my favorite three album run of any band ever. Really? Oh yeah, it, yeah, it's they're so solid. Good. They're solid. So, a lot of questions thrown in here. One of the main reasons that I I wanted to get you guys on was the oh so fun uh, debate on P ratios that's been going on, and I obviously will have links to the articles that you guys have written and Menno has written. Um, I think it would be impossible to summarize all of that uh, in a podcast, given the amount that's gone into it and the back and forth. Um, but I know not everybody reads articles <laughs> um, and, and you know wants to go through all of it. So I thought it could be a good general discussion. And when I heard, I'm sure it was you, Eric, but I don't remember if it was Mass or Stronger by Science, um, hearing you use a reference that I had used all the time, which was when discussing these whole things about, well, what's the optimal body fat and, you know, can you bulk up? I know for a long time, the idea was, well, the leaner you are, you know, the more you're sensitized to gaining muscle and then more came out that, well, Hey, you know, after a contest, you're, you're pretty much just going to be putting on more fat. Right. And then that's, that kind of got debunked, but I, like you use football players as an example, where it's like, look, like who is telling football players, Hey, like before you get into this like routine, you got to really cut down and then bulk back up, you know, or even powerlifters. Like, you know, nobody's saying, I mean, maybe a little different powerlifting, maybe go down to a lighter weight class, but on, on average, you know, people are not saying, well, you really got to diet down first. And so that doesn't mean that just because it's done like that, that's the best way. But when universally the people with the most muscle mass are these bigger, generally fatter guys, I think that says a lot. And um, obviously I picked up when you mentioned that as well. Yeah, I mean, that that was, um, you know, so this all started because I was covering a study uh, for mass. And, you know, it, it was like a rodent study. And it was like, oh, these two different groups of rodents, one got, uh, they, they both developed obesity on these two different diets. One of them had an impairment of hypertrophy, the other didn't. And so the researchers were like, it doesn't really seem to be obesity per se, that that is directly impairing this hypertrophy. And I kind of used that as a jumping off point and, and said, well, let's look at other literature to see, do we actually observe people making worse gains because they have higher body fat? And so, yeah, the football player data that to me, that was an intuitive place to go. You know, we see uh, there, there's a pretty decent amount of literature looking at longitudinal body comp changes in, you know, different positions of, of football players and, you know, if body fat has this really pronounced effect of impairing hypertrophy, you'd think you could at least get a glimpse of that. You know, it's it's not a perfect research model for that, but you'd think you could at least get, get some kind of uh, 
you know, glance at this effect playing out in real life. And, you know, the, the other thing um, that kind of was always in the back of my mind was, you know, I've done a nice dreamer bulk, you know, I mean, who hasn't, it, it's mm. the best of times. And, you know, I, you talk to anybody who's done a real committed bulk where they're like, screw it, I'm just going to gain 50 pounds and we're going to see what happens. You might have some people questioning whether or not it was worth it because then they felt compelled to lose a lot of fat that, that they gained in the process. But I've never really heard anyone saying like, man, I just left too many gains on the table because yeah. of that dreamer bulk I went on. Like I, I remember putting on a tremendous amount of muscle and, and then, you know, weighing that against the amount of fat that I had gained, but never did I view it as something that took me steps backward in terms of hypertrophy. So those are incredibly weak levels of evidence. And so that's kind of where we started. And then we dug deeper and deeper because the guiding principle for the whole thing was if this is an effect that exists, you know, body fat, uh, impairing gains and skewing P ratios, if that exists and it matters, those are two different things that are both important, but if it exists and it matters with all the hypertrophy research that's ever been done, it should be observable. We should be able to get a glimpse of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, any thoughts there, Greg? No, I, I think that was uh, a pretty <laughs> good summary. Uh, just for, for the sake of the listener, I think it's worth um, just throwing a definition out there for anyone who has now heard the term P ratio a dozen times and has mm. no idea what that means. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's basically the proportion of lean mass that changes in relation to change in body weight. Uh, so it applies both when you're gaining weight and losing weight, but here we're talking about uh, in the context of gaining weight. So a perfect P ratio in the context of gaining weight uh, would be, you know, if you gain uh, X amount of body weight, you gain the exact same amount of lean mass. Like all of the weight you gain is lean. Uh, as P ratios get lower, that means you're gaining you know, some amount of lean mass and a, a smaller and smaller proportion of that is muscle mass. Um, one of the issues with that, uh, with P ratios in general as a like conceptual idea uh, that you would use to evaluate how well a bulk or cut is going um, is that when you introduce one negative and one positive number into a P ratio, weird shit happens. So if you recomp, uh, you know, if you gain some lean mass and while losing weight, you have a negative P ratio. Um, and so you might see that and say like, oh, negative, cool. Now I know that negative P ratios are a good thing. But the exact same thing happens if you gain weight and lose lean mass. Right. Uh, that also gives you a negative number. So P ratios aren't incredibly wieldy in practical situations where recomping or I guess you could call it decomping is possible. Yeah, um, Decomposing. <laughs> I always say decomping. I have to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Um, but anyway, <laughs> in, in, in the context of you're gaining both weight and lean mass or losing both weight and lean mass, a P ratio is just the proportion of by which lean mass is changing relative to total body weight. Yeah. Yeah. I should have thrown in the definition there. So thank you for that. Um, and also I think, and again, I'm obviously, everything will be much more explained in the articles. But I remember hearing Lyle McDonald, like the first time I was introduced to P ratio was by Lyle McDonald, you know, however many years ago. And one of the things I remember was that it was like, okay, so leaner individuals did have, you know, 
um, more favorable P ratios when bulking up, but that very importantly, again, at least from what I remember, this did not apply to people who started fatter and got leaner. So, you know, me like growing up as a fat kid, I just thought, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, well, if I got leaner, then it would be superior. But um, basically it just seems to be that if you've dieted down that, that far to get to that leanness, um, it doesn't really apply. And any, anything counter to that that you would add? Well, I, I guess there, there's a couple things to keep in mind. So we could lean on the longitudinal weight loss and weight regain evidence. So when we see people losing weight and then eventually they start gaining it back, um, you know, people who really lean heavy into this P ratio idea in the idea that you can manipulate it by changing your body fat, they would expect that during weight regain, your P ratio should be improved relative to, to what it used to be. And, and we don't observe that. We, we see that, you know, your P ratio on the way down and your P ratio on the way back up tend to be either similar or it might actually be a little bit worse on the way back up. So, so we don't really see that playing out. And that kind of uh, gets at what you're referring to in terms yeah. of, you know, kind of if you're well below where you used to be, you know, can you expect this benefit? But personally, I, th I think uh, before we even get to that point, we have to consider what, where is this evidence that it's beneficial for any lean people uh, in any uh, context. And I've usually when people say that, that there's some inherent benefit to being leaner, uh, that, you know, it's going to help you achieve leaner gains, uh, better P ratio, more pronounced hypertrophy. Usually they're leaning on some data by, by Forbes, which was then kind of uh, updated by Kevin Hall. And it was in people who don't lift weights, who, who are, are not lifting weights whatsoever. And I, I think that that's a tremendously huge limitation that can't be, uh, it can't be ignored because uh, you, you can imagine situations where there might be some magnitude of, you know, for someone who's leaner, some stimulus for an accretion of lean mass when they overfeed. But, you know, when we start getting into, you know, 35, 40, 45% body fat, I don't think there's a lot of people who would expect that if you overfeed in that position, in that scenario, and you're not training and you have no stimulus for the accretion of lean mass, I don't expect a lot of people would say, oh, they're probably going to put on plenty of lean mass. You know, when you look at the Forbes data, uh, originally, a lot of the people that were gaining a lot of lean mass were actually recovering anorexia nervosa patients. Right. And the, uh, the stimulus for lean mass accretion is significant in that physiological state. So the Forbes data were basically indicating, yeah, some people had a stimulus to regain lean mass, some didn't. And in, from my perspective, that's pretty much what we're looking at there. Uh, Kevin Hall removed the anorexia nervosa data from his uh, kind of updated approach. But then we get into another question, which is causation. So people who have already developed obesity um, you might suspect that they're likely to have a worse P ratio in response to overfeeding. You know, they, they might be more likely to gain fat mass in the context of overfeeding, which is essentially what could be contributing to their status as a person with obesity at that time. 
you know, leaner people might have more robust defenses naturally against, you know, the weight gain, the fat gain induced from a calorie surplus to some extent. So these are really not strong levels of evidence. And the biggest issue, uh, like I said, is we're, we're trying to make inferences about how to plan your bulk and nobody here is lifting. And so a, a lot of the evidence relates to those two studies and the rest of it is, is mostly conjecture, uh, educated conjecture, I guess, but, but really loosely tying together fairly unrelated bodies of evidence related to things like inflammation or, or insulin resistance. Yeah. And, and the, the thing worth adding about the, the hall data or the, the Forbes and the hall data as well, um, insofar as kind of establishing that it's of limited utility when we're talking about lifting is when people talk about that data, they generally only talk about the weight gain side of the data. So, you know, you see P ratios are quite high uh, in very lean people in, in that data and pretty low in people with more body fat in that data. The thing is, uh, those, those uh, reviews also discuss weight loss and P ratios and weight loss. Um, and the exact same trend is observed. So when uh, without a resistance training stimulus, when people with more body fat go into a deficit, uh, a relatively smaller proportion of the weight they lose is lead mass. Whereas when relatively leaner people go into a calorie deficit, uh, a, a pretty large proportion of the weight they lose is lean mass, like 60, right. 70, 80%. And the thing is like, we know that that doesn't happen with lifters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like when you're getting, I've heard theoretically, if someone gets completely shredded, they'll probably lose some lean mass in the process. But you should be able to maintain virtually all of your lean mass until you get pretty lean in the first place, as long as you're lifting. So like, we know from data on lifters that the weight loss side of the Forbes and Hall data doesn't hold anymore as soon as you add a resistance training stimulus into the mix. Yep. Uh, so it seems fairly specious to just automatically assume that the weight gain side of the equation does still hold. Sure. And if I, if I could add one additional thing, uh, that's a great point, Greg, but one additional thing I'm, I'm well, looking I hope at, so. You, you're, you're the one who made it first. Well, maybe that's why <laughs> I like it so much. But I'm looking at the Kevin Hall model right now. And like one of the things that really gets lost, and I, I really don't think I've done a good enough job like hammering home when discussing this. If you look at the person, this is individual data in this, in this figure, the person with the third worst P ratio and the person with the literal best P ratio have the exact same body fat. Yeah. So like another, there, there's several different questions. Does the relationship exist? Does it matter? And is it strong enough to actually have any predictive utility? And so even if you're going to say, forget the lifting stuff, I don't care. Forget the point Greg made up or that Greg brought up uh, <laughs> that, that I made up. Uh, but, but the idea that if, you know, whatever benefit you think you're getting on the way up, you're sacrificing on the way down based on the model. Sure. Um, but yeah, th there's all these limitations. But one of the things is even if you want to take this model at face value, if you're one of these people who's sitting at around 17 on the x-axis, you either have the best or worst P ratio in the group, right. so more or less, uh, the best or like the third worst. So at that point, you wonder, is this of any utility whatsoever? Sure. sure. With, within the context of how we're trying to apply it. For sure.
Greg, I know you said, you said, so you've heard that that's the case. So I'm just wondering when the knuckles shred season is coming. You know, if my training goes well, hopefully within the next year or two. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, I, I've been strong for a bit. There are a few more strong things I want to do. Like I, I want to squat 800 in wraps. I've been close a lot of times, but never done it. Uh, having more mass is conducive to that. After that, I want to pull 800. Uh, I deadlift best when I'm about 20, 30 pounds lighter than I am now, just because my setup's better. Yeah. Um, so I'll lose weight to do that. And then uh, assuming I ever pull 800, which who knows, that might end up being my white rabbit. Uh, at that point, I, I will have no reason to be as big as I am. And yeah. I'll, uh, I'm planning on cutting. So who knows? That might be eight months from now. It might be like five years. But uh <laughs> That, that is the, the current timeline I'm working with. Uh, that actually, that gives me enough time to put together some recipes for you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so two follow-up questions there. One is, what would you expect your weight to be when you hit that 800? And two, uh, what would your like purely raw squat be roughly when you would hit an 800 with wraps? Like how much basically is, are the wraps adding? Uh, wraps give me about 50 pounds, give or take. Um, and, and I'm, I'm working up with rep maxes, which tend to be pretty predictive for me in the yeah. squat. Um, so right now I'm trying to hit 600 for eight, which would project me out to about a, or 605 for eight, which would project me out to about a 755, 760 squat. Um, and at that point I'll feel pretty good about throwing on wraps, doing a cycle and hitting eight. Um, yeah. Although there's a part of me, if I hit 605 for eight, I, I might just want to fuck around and hit it for 10. Cause like <laughs> 600 for 10 sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, like that, that would be a pretty sick milestone. Yeah. So well, I don't know. It's kind of laughable to most people I would say. So yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, man. We'll just see. We'll just see. Uh, training's going well. I, I'm probably a little cockier than I should be. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thing, things are things are going pretty well right now. Well, it's awesome point to of see. clarification, if I may, Greg, you mentioned that you would uh, just go ahead and do a cycle and go for that number. Uh, that was a training cycle that you were referring to. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It'd be useful to clarify that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so it's like the single clip I'm going to post. Um, so I mean, even even if it wasn't like, who cares? Uh, like, I, I think fewer than 50 people ever with or without drugs have squatted 800 at, at my body weight. So like. Yeah, if, if someone assumed I was on gear, like, who gives yeah. a shit? I'd still be very strong. And are you you're still around two fifty? Uh, yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm like uh, I'm like two fifty seven right now. Okay. Um, w when I do the eight hundred, I will one hundred percent be below like two fifty five. Okay. Because that that's the weight at which I still don't feel completely fraudulent calling myself a 242. Like as long as I'm within like comfortable water cutting range from 242, yeah. I'm like, whatever, I'm 242. Yeah, no, that's pretty amazing, dude. And it's interesting to see, I know when you were going through your masters, I, I mean, there was one point where you told me you hadn't lifted in like a month, right? Which I think for like a lot of us in the space. Oh dude, I didn't, I didn't live, I didn't live for like a year and a half. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, crazy to me. But and to see how quickly you got back to like basically all time strength levels is, is amazing. Well, Not, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
was that hard mentally to like step away? I mean, I know you were so busy. Maybe you just didn't think about it that much, but. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. Um, if anything, I think it was really good for me. Uh, I've been dealing with like several issues, like back issues, hip issues, shoulder issues for a long, long time. And I think just giving my body a protracted break for the first time in a long time helped, uh, helped help give some stuff a, a chance to heal that needed to heal. So I, I'm feeling physically better than I have. I mean, I, in terms of like the amount of just general discomfort I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I feel better now than I did like a decade ago, which is yeah. pretty cool. It's funny you say that actually, because when I was like 20, 21, um, just deadlifting like an idiot. And I remember thinking like, if, if I'm this busted up right now, 21, what's it going to be like when I'm 30 and now 30 is, you know, unfortunately, but it's around the corner and mm -hmm. I too actually feel better and in less pain than 10 years ago. Um, just by, and I, I haven't even changed that much. I mean, I still lift very hard, um, but just with like some tweaks and, and trying to like auto-regulate when things are hurting instead of just pushing through it. Um, like there was literally a time in college, I felt something pop on pull-ups and I was like, no, that's fine. And I'll do another one. <laughs> and then something really popped <laughs> and I was out of all back work for like two months. So I don't do stuff like that anymore, thankfully. Yeah. I, I wish I wasn't as dumb when I was younger. I, um, I don't know exactly what I did. I thought I just like strained my left lat a little bit, maybe like five years ago. Um, and it felt like kind of unstable, but like still strong enough. I was like, ah, whatever I can keep training. Yeah. Uh, and now unless I like kind of tense the muscles around my shoulder a little bit, my left arm just like minorly subluxes when I just like swing it normally when I'm walking. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh well. question for both of you then, um, you know, just going back to, well, I mean, I guess it is kind of like knowing when to stop because you just had a Instagram post on this, Greg, where you, you did one rep with a squat. I forget what the weight was, but in the 600s and you just kind of like, nope, and you racked it. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe a younger Greg would have tried to push through that Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And I know I would have too. So um, other than just dealing with injuries that have made you learn that, um, do you have advice for people who maybe are still in that phase of like when to know to back off of like, because obviously from an ego standpoint, it could be hard, especially if you're going for a PR, that mm -hmm. something just feels off and when to know like, all right, cool it and like, you know, live to fight another day. So here's my opinion. This could be a minority opinion. I think that, um, I think it's hard to give messaging around this that, that is generally good for like all people all of the time. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I do think from being in gyms a lot, I think that the bigger problem most people have is they don't push hard enough often enough. Uh, like you, you see a lot of people just spinning their wheels for a long time and you watch them train and like nothing ever looks particularly hard. And it's like, well, okay, now I see why you haven't gained any muscle or any strength in the last five years. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I do think that uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to just put out there in the world that like, oh yeah, everyone needs to be a lot smarter and more conservative with their training. Cause I, think that a lot of people are a little bit too conservative with their training 
yeah. honestly. But I think that a lot of people who um, who are who are wired to maybe be a little bit more extreme with how they push themselves, uh, you, you know, pr- probably would benefit more from a, a slightly more conservative approach to training. Um, I mean, one of the things I find with clients I train is the ones that I'm constantly like watching their videos and telling them like, Hey man, probably should have cut it off a rep sooner. They're the ones who tend to get better progress over time than the folks who, you know, I, I tell them like, Hey, you know, we, we want to push this within a rep or two of failure. And then they send the video. I'm like, okay, you were like six reps shy. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's definitely like, uh, a comment, like a, a happy medium in there um, that I think most people struggle with on one side or the other. I, I don't think that there are that many people who uh, are, are chill enough in their approach to training, but also psychotic enough in their approach to training that they can really, really push themselves, but then constantly make the correct decision about when to stop themselves and pull back. Uh, and, and I certainly don't want to pretend like I'm there either. Like I still have a tendency to, to push quite a bit too far, but now I only do it like, I don't know, 70% of the time instead of, instead of a hundred percent of the time, which right. is progress. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that there's, I, I think that there's a happy medium and most people need to push themselves more. Some people need to pull back. All right. Additional thoughts, Eric. Um, I mean, if the bar isn't bending, you're just pretending. And if you're, you know, stopping shy of failure, then what's the point? That that would be my informative. No, I I think uh, I'm with Greg. I I have uh, quite a few regrettable uh, sets in my in my past where I I wish I wouldn't have pushed quite as far. Um, but it's because I, I was always like a really, you know, I had that kind of pretty extreme mindset where I'd go into the gym and uh, didn't want to really leave anything uh, on the table. You know, I wanted to to push it pretty hard. So my, my biggest thing has been pulling back, uh, much like much like Greg said. But, you know, I, I, I go to the gym and I see people and I work with clients and I see it um, where, you know, some some people would benefit from pushing things just a little bit harder. So it's, you know, it's tough because you don't want to, it's not about wearing it as a badge of honor, you know, and and saying like, oh, I'm just always going to push this as hard as possible because that's when you end up going a little too far with it. But, you know, it, it probably, it probably just takes time. Like, I, I don't know how you set that range without going too far sometimes. And I think, you know, Greg and I, uh, we, you know, we've been training hard for a long time. We got into it when we were pretty young. And so, you know, we've, we've done enough of those sets where you push, you get a little greedy in the gym. And then you look back and you're like, yeah, that, that wasn't, that wasn't advisable. And then you, you know, hopefully you carry that with you moving forward. So right now I, I could probably stand a, a push any at all. <laughs> so I, I definitely need to push myself harder for now, but, um, but yeah, finding that sweet spot can be challenging. I, I, I think it's largely based on experiential knowledge as well. Like, I, I think that, uh, I, I think it's hard to know how much is too much until you've done too much enough yeah. times. And uh, and then when you start getting into that, that territory, you can feel it. You're like, okay, 
I know this feeling, it's not a good feeling, it's time to stop, you know? Um, and, and I do think that that's something that you can really only tell subjectively. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to take someone who's never lifted before and like exactly describe to them how much effort is appropriate to put into their training. Cause I think most of them will, will skew with towards too little effort. Uh, and you don't want to give them the advice, like, Hey, just take like three years to do stupid shit and run yourself into the ground. Like I, I'm not recommending people do that, but at the same time, as someone who did absolutely do that, uh, I think I'm better off for it now. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I would say one, one thing that could be helpful to people who train others, so, you know, you, you can look for the clues. So yeah, like Greg yeah. said, you can see it in videos and that's pretty apparent, but you can also see it in other ways. So when you've got a client who on their intake form mentions, you know, a, a 35 page injury history, you know, shoulders, elbows, knees, back, you're like, okay, you, you've been pushing it a little bit, it looks like. Or when you've got a client, this is the, the really kind of nuanced part. If you keep ramping up a lift for them and their reported reps in reserve or RPEs, you know, it, it's a high RPE, it's hard, but it's not getting harder when the weight is going up and you're really pushing it. That's when I start to wonder like, you're just kind of pushing this no matter what, aren't you? And, and like, yeah. you're really not listening to, to the feedback you're getting from your body. So sometimes I see that and I'm like, you know, the reps in reserve is always like zero or 0 0.5, but I keep loading the weight on and you're not changing anything. Like right. you're getting all the reps. To me, that's kind of a warning sign sometimes. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, there's just certain things that like, I know I could not have, gone to the point without experiencing it myself like it, there's just I don't know just stubborn 20 year old sometimes you just you have to learn it um, and, and regarding the failure thing I think one of the reasons that's become more of a topic recently again is that you're right like you look at the gym and, and I've said this a number of times on the podcast before I always had a hard time relating like when people say oh you don't know how to hard like how to train hard and you don't know what it would be like to train with me and this was just a foreign concept because I, like you guys, started around 12 years old and I was pushing to failure and beyond with like intensity techniques and everything very early. So I was like, what do you mean you don't know how to push hard? But I, if you look around in your average gym, yeah, most people are obviously stopping well short of that. So context of who you're speaking to is obviously huge there. Um, one thing that I just released a podcast today with John Meadows and one of the things that people were commenting through DMs and in the YouTube comments was that, well, you could actually never train to failure. John says, you know, if you're advanced, you're going to have to train to failure. Those are the reps that like really count. And how could you progressively overload without training to failure? You can't. And I think if you want to get into nuance there, you could make the argument that, well, no, you could still indefinitely, I mean, not indefinitely, but for a while have progressive overload without going to failure, because if you do sets to, let's say two or three RIR, well, the whole idea is that you're going to adapt. So the next week you could add two pounds for the same reps and you're still two to three RIR. And in theory, you could just never train that, you know, within a couple of reps of failure and keep progressing and get to roughly the same point. And I think maybe like Mike Zordos would argue for that point, at least from what I've heard in some of his mass reviews, he seems to feel like that's what the research consistently shows. Um, there is certainly 
there seems to be a big discrepancy between, you know, the evidence-based crowd and a lot of guys like a John Meadows, Dante Trudell, Scott Stevenson. So um, both in theory and practice, what do you guys think there? Well, I, I would defer to Greg because especially when you mentioned something like effective reps, I, I know that yeah. he wrote a, a really killer article about that. Yep. I was going to defer to you because I feel like I've been talking a lot, but uh, sure, I'll, I'll take a swipe. I think that there, so one of the things that I would love to see research on is I would love to see some more, um, some more like within subject designs where you just like expose uh, like different sides of the body to different training stimuli and to see if, uh, you know, specifically with like proximity to failure stuff. So, you know, like uh, a, a larger number of sets stop shy of failure versus just like a handful taken all the way to failure. I strongly suspect that certain people just uh, respond well to different styles of training. And I think that one of the issues you can run into online is one, I think, I think this is just a natural human tendency. You assume that your own experience generalizes. So, sure. you know, maybe you went with like a more high volume approach, a ton of sets, not any intensity techniques, not taking stuff to failure. And maybe you spin your wheels for a while. And then you discover like, you know, lower volume, but to failure, a lot of intensity techniques, that style of training. And it just works really, really well for you. I think, I think it's natural to have that experience and think like, okay, this is, this is a generalizable phenomenon. And then you tell people online, like, Hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Like, this is, this is how you should train. And just naturally people who have similar experiences are going to back you up with that. Like, oh yeah, man, like I, I made this switch like five years ago. I found the exact same thing. And it just kind of becomes like a self-reinforcing thing where you can surround yourself with a community of like-minded people who had similar experiences. Uh, and then like, you know, you could go to Eric Helms's Instagram account and he's like, ah, you know, I, I don't train to failure. I use reps in reserve. I generally stop things two or three reps shy of failure. And there will also be like a bunch of people in the comments like, Oh yeah, I used to go to failure all the time, always got beat up, never grew. And then I started doing more sets and stopping shy of failure. And that like really unlocked things for me, you know? So I, I think that there are differences in the style of training people respond best to. And I think it's really, really easy once you start promoting something to just attract other people with similar experiences to yourself. And then it becomes self-reinforcing. Um, like, I, I don't think... I certainly don't think Helms is like that. Like, I, I think he recognizes that there's like variability in, in what people respond well to just using him uh, as an example of someone who uses like RP and RIR and hypertrophy training a lot. Um, so yeah, I think like <laughs> my default stance is to believe people when they share anecdotes, especially when there's like no clear indication that they have some sort of impetus to lie about it. And like, I've heard a lot of people say like, oh yeah, man, uh, people who talk about like this, the science and volume research and how important high volume is, that's full of shit, man. Like I used to do that. And when I just started doing fewer sets, but really taking them to failure or past failure, that's when I really started growing. Like I've heard a lot of people say that I have no reason to think they're lying about it. And then I've heard the exact opposite where people are like, oh yeah, I used to do 
like the high intensity training stuff. I tried some, some DC style training, didn't do anything for me, but then as soon as I really cranked the volume up, like that's, that's when the gains took off. I think they're all telling the truth. And, uh, there are just like very, just considerably differing styles of training that work better or worse for particular individuals. Yep. Yeah. When I was like probably a couple years into it and you know, a lot of times people would just prescribe straight sets. And so I was doing everything to failure. And so if it said like four by eight, you know, maybe I do 50 pound dumbbells for eight and then I had to go down to 45 for eight, 45 for eight, and then whatever, 40 for eight. And I just thought that was how it was. And then later when I kind of learned like, okay, you maybe ramp up and maybe one or two top sets. I thought I was so dumb for that original way of training. I was like, wow, what an idiot. Like I, I just completely was doing the wrong thing, but I also happened to grow a lot during that period because I was new and everything. But the point was like, they both worked, you know, I think like there's you know ramping method of like, just kind of going up to a top set. Um, I made a video recently, how, if you actually look at a lot of like the pro bodybuilders who will say, you know, I do high volume, I do, you know, 10 sets for chest and that's three different exercises. It's really kind of like, you ramp up to like a top set, you get a new exercise, you ramp up to a top set and et cetera. The point just being that there's a million different ways to do it. And I think you're right that you kind of get these camps of people and, you know, kind of like there's a Mike Israel camp now and people just like love that method. And, and then, you know, DC, obviously, I mean, if, if you are on a DC forum and you say anything bad about <laughs> DC, you know, you're going to be quickly you know, run out of that forum. I believe that they believe it. Um, whether or not it's actually what's best, it's hard to say. Not that to discount your point about it being specific to the individual, but I also would just question if obviously not everybody's tried everything. So sometimes somebody just finds a camp that works for them and they don't venture out. Yeah, hey, I, I was going to say something along those lines uh, where I, I rarely think that somebody's lying to me about their anecdote, but I do sometimes question the accuracy just because. Yeah of the the bias we can introduce and kind of convince ourselves that, you know, option A worked better than option B. I'm usually much more inclined to wonder if they are getting a objectively true unbiased uh, assessments of their progress. But, but I, I agree with Greg. I don't, I don't think many people are, are out there to mislead about what sure. worked best for them. Do you think, and I know you have a whole thing out there on uh, effective reps, Greg, but when you actually look at the idea of an advanced trainee and how, okay, like there's an argument to be made for the volume of those early reps, but if you're doing a 12 rep set, obviously reps one through six really aren't that hard. Mm -hmm. um, the whole principle behind something like DC training, a lot of these like rest pause type things is that, Hey, you're going to do a set to 12. You're going to rest 40 seconds. Now you can only do another four and then maybe another three. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, and actually, I, I do that quite a bit now, not because I, I think it's superior, but I haven't, I certainly haven't lost anything. And that itself is not necessarily an argument because obviously we know the stimulus needed to maintain is, is much lower. Um, so I'm basically maintaining. And so I find, okay, I can cut my workout time to maybe 50 to 75% and no harm, no foul. Do you see arguments why that's not optimal? if you're still getting similar numbers, similar number of very intense reps, um, obviously still focusing on progress over time and everything else. Uh, I mean, I don't know, man. I, 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 I frankly don't care. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I think, I, I think this is an important point 
Um, I think it's important to note that ultimately everything we talk about is a proxy measure for whatever stimulus is being, uh, being presented. Um, and so, you know, people talk about, people used to talk about volume load all the mm -hmm. time, like sets yeah. times reps times weight. And like, Oh, I, I moved uh, 5,000 kilograms in this workout. So like if I move more kilograms in my next workout, like that will be overload. And like, I should adapt. Uh, there's not bean counters in your muscles that are like tallying up kilograms. That's, yeah. that's not how biology works. Like th that was a proxy measure for the total amount of stress you were exposing your body to. Same thing with uh, just like counting hard sets, which is what I'm personally a fan of. Yeah. You know, you get within two or three reps of failure, just count up the hard sets per muscle group. Like that's, I, I think probably a better proxy than, uh, than volume load for, for reasons I've laid out elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but that's still just a proxy measure, you know? Um, like the, the stimulus presented by, you know, a set of eight, uh, with two reps in reserve, that's not identical to a set of 40 to failure. You know what I mean? Like th those are two different stimuli you're exposing your body to. Um, and, you know, people like using so-called effective reps as a proxy for the stimulus you're presenting to your body. But same thing, like your, your biceps muscle fibers don't know precisely when they're five reps from failure and start like counting reps then to decide how much to grow. So ultimately we're just dealing with proxies. And, and I think that like, I don't know, maybe some proxies work better for some people than others. Like I, and we also don't know like every single discrete signaling pathway associated with hypertrophy, or if the relative importance of all of them is identical for every person. You know what I mean? Um, and so like, if, if we knew that to be true, that like, the precise, I mean, the signaling pathways are probably the same, but just like the, the relative importance of each one that ultimately is resulting in protein accretion. If we knew that those were exactly the same for everyone, then like maybe we could then rationally get ourselves to an argument that a single style of training and a single proxy for the stimulus you're exposing to the muscle is the best one for everyone all the time. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet. And I also don't think that's true. Um, I think it's, I think it's very plausible that like, once you, once you start reading about like molecular biochemistry and all of the shit that eventually converges on muscle protein synthesis, there's a lot of roads leading to Rome. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's incredibly plausible that just like different ones of those pathways are more or less active for different individuals uh, and that therefore there are slightly different stimuli to stimulate like the particular pathway that is most active and useful for a given person. And so like, yeah, we're, we're dealing with proxies of proxies uh, and we're trying to predict how they will affect various pathways that we don't fully understand and don't know the degree to which they differ between individuals. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, Go, going into a mostly uncharted territory with a compass and trying to find like precise coordinates on, on, on a map or something. And you don't even know what the coordinates are. Like we're, we're, we're just kind of like stumbling and hope, hoping we're stumbling in the, in the correct general direction. And I, I think that's, I think that's the best we can do right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to make it not so much in my channel that I'm always just like, who cares, but, 
often that my kind of my message is not to be demotivating, but it's like, okay, we have these like pillars and these are the most important um, mm-hmm. and people get bogged down in these details. And I just find that so much of it doesn't matter. And I remember a, you know, well-known guy in the industry, I want to put him on blast, but I remember him saying like, if you don't know your volume load every week and how that changes, you don't know anything about programming. And it was like, you know, I, I don't know, did Louis Simmons know his like exact volume load? I mean, I think, I mean, maybe, and he's maybe not the best example, but he, he probably did. Yeah, I was gonna say he, he probably gonna say, everyone so, I've talked to um, about Louis says that he is a savant for numbers. Yeah, he can tell you like all of his athletes' training loads for like every week of their training. Day <laughs> yeah, day I was gonna day. say he, he probably isn't the best example. Yeah, I've, who, I've seen videos of him where he's he's like re- recounting a workout that happened in 1983, <laughs> and he's like, so the the third set we went for 12, and honestly, it wasn't a problem. Like he yeah. he has cat cataloged every workout that any of his athletes have ever done. It's incredible. Yeah. He, he's like, uh, he's like Bill Russell where like p- people said that Bill Russell 30 years after he retired could walk you through just like some, some random game in the middle of a season from yeah. like 45 years prior and just take <laughs> you through it play by play. Uh, and, and I think that is, that is what Louie can do for all of his athletes. Yeah. I probably, probably picked a, a bad <laughs> example, but in general, you know, you know, I, for, I think hard sets is probably what most people are comfortable with. Most it, it's very easy to use. Um, it, it's personally what I use and uh, it, again, it, it's comfortable, but I do think kind of going to the point of like not caring, even when I look at like one of the reasons that I like the mass research review, obviously I do like the details, but probably half of the conclusions are something along the lines of, well, you know, maybe, maybe if you want to try, give it a shot, but I don't know if it's going to do anything. Um, which again, I obviously I'm subscribed. So obviously I love the mass review, but I'm just saying that it's, it's not like we're coming across these like giant factors anymore for the most part. Um, and I don't think like, even when you look at like the different camps of people, like how different really are like the messages, like probably not so, so different. Yeah, I, I think I think it should be less demotivating and more empowering. Like I, I think that um, I, I think that a lot of people consume information with the assumption that people are justified in giving more precise answers than they would be justified in giving. So I, I think like ultimately the so ultimately I think what you should be thinking of when you're consuming content is trying to figure out what sorts of things seem to work pretty well for fairly broad swaths of people. And you could come across very, very different training ideas that have been very, very successful. So like, you know, we just brought up Louis Simmons, very successful powerlifting coach. His lifters are fucking strong. Like the, the results speak for themselves. And, I'm sure like some drug free people listening to this will say like, ah, steroids. It's like they were competing against other people who were also using a lot of steroids and the West side guys tended to be stronger. You know what I mean? Uh, So like that has been very successful. Uh, Shaco also very successful. But if you just like line up what a month's worth of workouts that Boris Shaco writes for his athletes look like, compared to a month of West side style training, that shit doesn't even look similar. You know what I mean? But like, those are coherent systems that have produced a lot of outrageously strong people. And so I I think that 
a lot of the value comes from looking looking at things that you know have, haven't just like produced one or two flashes in the pan, but have produced uh, sustained success for a lot of people. Uh, and then just like putting that in the tool in the toolkit and trying stuff, and you know giving something a shot, seeing what the results are, seeing if it works well for you, seeing if you like it. And if it doesn't, not getting too married to anything and not trying to find the answer. Because once you think you have the answer, if you're too confident in that, I think the direction a lot of people go is like, well, okay, I, I figured out the answer. I figured out the optimal way to train. I spent way too much time in, in PubMed and finally figured out the best way to lift weights. And lo and behold, it doesn't work that well for me. I guess I just have bad genetics and I'm cursed to be small forever. You know what I mean? <laughs> whereas, whereas what I would recommend doing is saying like, Hey, find like a half dozen archetypal approaches to training. Just look at them, see what looks the most fun, give that a shot. And if it works great for you, that's perfect. And if not, okay, you have five other options to try next. Give each one of them a real honest, consistent shot. And if something, if something doesn't work well, you well for you, don't get too married to it. Like move on to something else, try something else. There's, there's a lot of approaches to training that have worked well for a lot of people. If I could chime in, I think there's two really important things there. So um, you mentioned it's empowering, Greg, and I, I totally agree with that because it means, you know, a lot of, a lot of people think they're trying to find like this one secret method that actually is the method that works, um, which that's not a very empowering way to look at it. It looks like you're dependent on somebody to give you all these answers and hopefully you enjoy that style of training. Cause if not, then you're screwed. You're either going to have to do the training you like or the training that actually works. Um, but, but what's really nice about there being multiple tools in the toolbox is that you can probably find a variety of things that work for you acceptably well, adequately well. And there's probably going to be a few things in there that you really love. So, so it increases the likelihood that you're going to have an, a style of training that works for you and you love doing it. And, th and that's a really positive thing. Um, and, and Greg, like you mentioned, there are some people who are like, they have a young training age. They haven't been in it for too long and they've convinced themselves, I, I found the right way to train. It doesn't really seem to work for me. Therefore, my genetics suck. And this is the end of the road for me. And it's like, well, first of all, you've been lifting 18 months. So maybe we'll try a, a third thing, you know, but yeah, but you know, we, we talked to, uh, to Mike Tushier not too long ago. It, actually, it was a very long time ago, but time doesn't exist anymore for me. Uh, but we were talking to Mike Tushier and, you know, he was a, a world champion when Greg and I were like in high school. And he said the phrase he used was turning over rocks. You know, and, and he said he's still doing it. He still believes there are things out there that he has not yet identified that can continue to optimize his training and help him get stronger. And this is a person who has a lifelong love for training, uh, an incredible amount of success. And if you were getting into lifting and saying, what do I want my lifting journey to look like as an absolute best case scenario? I think it's Mike. It's a, it's a guy who loves what he's doing and is exceptionally good at it and has gotten really, really strong. So like, I, I think it's important to keep that in mind, the idea of turning over rocks and continuing to progress, not just month over month, but decade over decade. For sure. For sure. Um, there are, I, I like the concept in general, obviously, of, because like you said, I find that more empowering as well in a sense that 
there's going to be certain things that people just don't like to do. Right. And so it, I think it can be motivating to know, well, find what you like and stick with it. I think obviously if you're switching things all the time, you know, there's, there's errors with that. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's why I said, give it an honest shot. I mean, right. you know, yeah. at least like four to six months, you know, one, one consistent bulk cycle, yeah. see, yeah. see what happens. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up was because you guys had a, a recent review on um, ischemic preconditioning. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things you said, Greg, which I agree with is that like, with the amount of time it could take, <laughs> like, it's probably not gonna be worth it for most, but you said like, maybe in a specific event, you would try it. Um, one thing I, I wonder about with that, and, and a number of these other, even like a lot of the supplements that you've reviewed, Eric, where we do show uh, statistically significant benefit to it. Um, and I've brought up similar points before where, and I know we, we don't have a clear answer here, but just my, my suspicion is that it really doesn't matter too much is somebody will say, well, you know, I got everything in line. I was, I was hitting like hundred percent nutrition, this, this, that, and the other. And it just makes me wonder, like, I I've known people with like, you know, chronic diseases who have still gotten really jacked, like way more than other people. And I've seen people who had consistently five hours of sleep a night and were again really really impressive and it just kind of makes me wonder like yes for an individual for them they will see this acute benefit from hey i started getting more sleep or i, I started having caffeine or whatever but over a 15 to 20 year lifting career i i really wonder like even basically even more so going with the concept of does it matter <laughs> um do any of these things get you that much further over time? Meaning, does it increase the rate or did it just give you a little bit of a bump, but ultimately you're still gonna get there. And like, if somebody did 10 years of ischemic preconditioning as a, just a you know kind of silly example before all their workouts, is that actually going to benefit them? Because a lot of what we review are really acute changes. And sometimes we're not even, as you pointed out earlier, Greg, we're not even using, we're using surrogate markers for muscle growth and that then it takes it even a step further. But. What, what do you think about this, Trex? Um, I mean, we are ultimately looking at little mini snapshots that are, you know, X weeks long, maybe months. And so there, there's the kind of literal interpretation, which is all we can say is that these people got further along within an 8, 12, 24 week time frame. So, so you could make the argument, yeah, this is more altering the rate of improvement and maybe they're going to plateau there and the other group is going to continue catching up and then they're all going to be in the same place. Um, generally speaking, I, I kind of view it as a, a big regression model, you know, and, and there's going to be the really big stuff that really matters that, that drives our gains. And, you know, what we're all trying to do is basically reach for that genetic ceiling you know, where we've really optimized everything we could optimize and we are the best we're going to be. And I think I, I don't believe that as many people get close to their genetic ceiling as, as we believe, you know, like I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm pretty close to as good as I could possibly be. And, you know, maybe I can make one or two little changes to get, you know, a tenth of a percentage point better, but I, I, I feel like too many people think they're very close to their genetic limit. And so w when I think of this regression model of all the big stuff that goes into it, your genetics, your training stimulus, you know, are you eating enough protein in a day? Are, are you in, 
you know, are you eating the right number of calories per day? Those are the big things. But will we necessarily get any further along in a training career by focusing on the smaller things? I would have to suspect yes. I, I think those people probably, if, if they really are putting the effort into optimizing all the little stuff, they probably are going to get a little bit closer to their genetic limit than others, I would expect. But, but then the question is, you know, the, is it worth it? You know, managing all these little variables that aren't nearly as important that might get you just a little bit closer. I, I think for everybody, that cost-benefit uh, breakdown is different. And, and so I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, whatever extra benefit over my training career I would get from, you know, intervention X, whatever it might be, that, that difference between where I would be without it and where I would be with it is negligible to me. I do not care about it and it is not worth it to me. But I, I don't know if it truly is as simple as, listen, we're all going to get to wherever we're going to get over the next, you know, two years or three years or however long you stick with it. And yeah, I, I don't know if it's as simple as saying this is just going to get you there, you know, X percent faster. I, I, I would have to speculate that there's some additive benefit of minding those details. But the question is, is the benefit big enough to actually care about? And I think that's going to vary from person to person. Yeah, I, I agree with Eric. I, I think that it's, I think it is an open question. And I think it would be intellectually arrogant to say that we know for sure uh, how this all works out. Because, you know, to, to make any sort of statement like that, we need like a 25 year longitudinal study, which, which is never going to happen. You know, um, I do also suspect that uh, what people perceive to be their genetic limits are so what one I, I'm not going to deny that some sort of genetic limit exists per individual but I think that oftentimes what people perceive to be that limit is the limit of what they can get with what they are willing to do and what they sure. can feasibly do um, and and that can feel like a hard limit because you know you're like <laughs> you feel like you're doing a lot of things pretty right you hit a ceiling uh, and either you just stop making gains or the gains are really, really, really hard to come by. Um, but so one of the things that you can see when, when athletes uh, in like other sports where uh, it can be a full-time job, unlike lifting, uh, one of the things you can see is that like when people make the next step to the next level of competition, they tend to get a lot better pretty quickly. Um, so like, you know, uh, a super, super high level high school athlete generally, you know, once they go D one, they tend to make a lot of improvements in their first year, year and a half in the D one program. And, and that's probably largely because like now they have a nutrition staff. Now they have better coaching. Um, now, instead of like actually having to go to class and do all of their work. Uh, maybe there's some help from the university and they just get A's for showing up. Who's to say, um, but whatever, like they, they can focus on their training more. There's more little details that, that are, uh, being addressed for them and they tend to make some, some pretty rapid progress. And then beyond that, the ones that do end up being able to go pro their first couple of years where they're a professional athlete. And now it is literally their job. There aren't classes that they have to pretend to go to. There's not. Uh, like limits imposed by the NCAA for how much time can be spent on the sport. 
Uh, now there's more resources. There's a larger training staff. There's like more people helping them with recovery modalities, et cetera, et cetera. You tend to see another jump there as well. Um, whereas like, you know, if you were just looking at rates of progress and you see like, oh, from their, their first to second year in division one college, they got quite a bit better, but then maybe they didn't make that much more progress from their sophomore to junior year, not much more from their junior to senior year. You know, maybe they're hitting their genetic limit, they're plateauing, but then as soon as they graduate and they can like hit that next level of development, unlock more time, unlock more, you know, resources being invested in them to ensure that they're performing as well as they possibly could be. You see that, you see that additional little boost, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and so I think that that probably exists for most people. Like I, I think <laughs> most folks uh, who take training pretty seriously, but have a full-time job and a family and responsibilities. I think if you took them and said like, okay, for a year, uh, your job is to lift weights and you're going to have someone preparing all of your meals for you. There's going to be a support staff to help you with recovery modalities you're just going to take this year to get as, as big and freaky huge as possible. I think a lot of those people who think they're at their genetic limits probably do have a non-trivial amount more in the tank. Um, but functionally, do they, if, if they're never going to be in that situation where they right, could do right. all of that shit, you know? And so so I, I do think all of those little things that in, in individually, independently, wouldn't have a large effect, probably do add up if you can do a lot of them together. Yeah. And Greg, along those, along that point, I, I've talked to some people who work with like pretty high level American football players at, at the college level. And they'll tell you there's usually two periods where, where those athletes make big strides and it's first year in the program going from high school to college. Like you said, completely mm -hmm. different resources, completely well, uh, different level of focus. And then also, when that year leading up to when they're going to get to the league, when, when they're going to make that jump to the NFL when and they start trying, taking it more seriously. Yeah. And when, yeah. when they start getting ready for the draft, it becomes a, even more intense, more like a full-time time gig. And they'll get this other bump late in the career when they realize like, yeah, if I can shave like X percent off my 40 time, that's going to make me $3 million. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's a really good way to shave your 40 time or get a few more reps on the bench test. Yeah. Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, when I, cause some people, cause I, I've heard people respond thinking that they're in agreement with me of like, Oh yeah, no, like after five years you're done. And I'm like, well, let me be clear. Like I do not think almost anybody is done after five years, you know, even if in theory you could be like in practicality, like nobody is actually doing that. And obviously things level off, but like when I'm talking about this, I'm saying like, okay, I have been lifting for 17 years, right? Like I'm, unless I start blasting a bunch of gear, there's probably not a lot that I could do. And I have done the, the 40 pound bulk up and let me try like two years to get every last little bit out of it. doesn't mean I couldn't gain half a pound of muscle maybe, but I'm just saying like effectively done. Um, but I don't want people to hear this and think like, no, like it, it just doesn't matter. A lot of it does matter. I'm just talking about like at the extreme levels. And then also the acute versus, um, I guess, like the long-term increased rate. Like I have always wondered like, okay, if you had two twins and one of them is taking creatine for 10 years, like we know creatine is going to add something, but if one of them is taking it for 10 years 
And the other one takes it for nine and a half. In the last six months, they took it for, you know, those six months. Now they're both at 10 years. Are they basically going to be at the same? Did it actually increase the rate of it? Again, it's such a cheap supplement. Why not do it? I think people who are in this endeavor often want to just check all those boxes. But I, I think a lot of things fall into that category of like, did it really increase the rate or was it just the same thing? The ischemic preconditioning would be another example. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, I know some people enjoy thought experiments. I don't. <laughs> I, I basically think through it as follows. Am I, am I doing the stuff right now I'm willing to do to maximize my gains today? And if I do that over 20 years, am I going to get further than if I didn't? I'd say probably so. Because I think we all have a big reserve, you know, like Greg said, with, with whatever we're willing to do, we all have that capacity to crank it up a notch, I believe. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I've been a, you know, multi-sport professional athlete. Some might say one of the, one of the best athletes on the planet in some ways, um, but not any literal ways. But, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I don't think I've ever come anywhere near my genetic limit. And it's because I'm not willing to do the stuff that it takes to get there. So. Yeah. So, you know, whenever I think of that, I, I just simplify it and say like, well, I mean, if I'm really leaning into this hard, I'm going to do what, it, what I can do, what I'm willing to do to maximize my gains over the next, you know, six weeks, six months, whatever, continue doing that for 20 years. And I'm probably not going to regret it. I'll probably get a little bit further along, but yeah. you know, if, if you want to start talking about the literal efficacy of a single intervention over six weeks versus 16 years, it gets pretty speculative and you have sure. to really break it down to the mechanisms by which that thing is supposed to work. I, I think. Definitely. All right, guys. Well, we covered a lot here. I appreciate you both taking the time dealing with my coordination issues. And uh, I think probably 99% of the people watching this know who you are and where to find you, but for the 1% who doesn't, where can people find more of your stuff? You got it. Uh, StrongerByScience.com is a good place. You can check out mass, our research review, uh, and you can find me on Instagram at Trexler fitness. What about you, Greg? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Greg knuckles and, uh, the business on Instagram at stronger by science. Uh, and if you want a good podcast to check out, if you like the audio content that we're a part of, uh, I personally run a podcast called the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat Series. You can just search that and, and find it wherever fine podcasts are found. Uh, and I believe Eric has a podcast as well, don't you? Yes, it's called the Stronger by Science podcast. And uh, it's my baby. You know, we, we finished season three a while back. We're going to be coming back soon. And uh, we've got so many surprises and so many guest co-hosts in store. It's going to be wild. <laughs> Awesome stuff, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you.